Today I'm very happy to introduce a special episode with a dear friend, Regula Isevin. We met in London in 2011 at the Food Blogger Connect, and since then we've become best friends, supporting each other through life and work endeavors. From the very first months when we were both trying to build up a career in the world of food writing and photography, to writing our first cookbook, or moving house, getting married, or simply chatting on WhatsApp to catch up. We launched together with our friend Sharka Babita the Three Acres Gatherings, food and creativity workshops that gave us much in terms of inspiration and friendship. Today, we are here to celebrate our new cookbook, Oz from the North, We from the South. Before the new episode, I would love to thank you for the precious support. I'm really touched by your comments, humbled by your feedback, happy to know that this podcast brings some peace, inspiration, practical advice and lightheartedness in your daily life during such difficult times. If you want to stay updated as not to miss a single episode, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you are listening to a podcast and share cooking with an Italian accent with your friends. If you like this show and you're listening to this podcast on an Apple device, please consider rating and reviewing the show. How to do it is very simple and straightforward. Open the podcast app, click on our podcast and scroll to the bottom of the podcast main page. There, you can rate and review the show. This will help us enormously to be more visible so that new people can discover us and share the same passion for Italian food. And now, let's start! Ciao! My name is Giulia Scarpaleggia. I am a Tuscan-born and bred country girl, a home cook, a food writer and a photographer. I teach Tuscan cooking classes in my house in the countryside and I've been sharing honest, reliable Italian recipes for 10 years now through my cookbooks and my blog, JulesKitchen.com. If you love everything about Italian food, big crowded tables and seasonal ingredients, join us and follow this podcast, Cooking with an Italian Accent. My name is Giulia Scarpaleggia and you are listening to Cooking with an Italian Accent, episode 37. So, ciao Regula, I'm so happy to have you here. We usually spend hours chatting when we're together, (laughs) as we have just done, probably. (laughs) But now I really miss our three acres gathering, our trips to London together, our New Year's Eve spent with each other's families, as in Belgium, uh, with with our Belgian family and you with your Italian family. So uh, I thought that the launch of your new book, Oats in the North, With from the South, could be a good excuse to have a little chat. Uh, so I'm sure you have your egg gray tea. Do you have it? <laughs> I have it. I have it. Of yep. course. I have one here with me. So we can start talking about you and about your new book. But first, can you briefly introduce yourself? Okay, so um, this is always the hardest part. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I know. <laughs> I have to like think about what I'm going to say about myself. Okay, but I'll, yeah. 
Okay, so my name is Regula Isewin. I am from Belgium, from Flanders, Antwerp to be specific. And I have a passion for Britain and for British cuisine. And I've been writing books about the subject uh, for a few years now, um, but also about my own culture. I've also written a book about Belgian beer cafe culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, for me, it's, it's um, fading cultures that I am interested in and interested in saving and preserving because there's so many things we can learn from the past and we don't have to always look at the future and being um, new and exciting. We can look at the past and see what's exciting there as well. So that's a little something about me. I think that's yeah. all. Did I leave something and out? You, you do this brilliantly anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because all your books are so fascinating. It's like reading uh, novels or reading, you know, it's not just a cookbook. The one I have here in front of me is a beautiful journey through history and traditions and amazing recipes, of course, and beautiful pictures. So you really do this in an amazing way, really. Thank you. Thank you. It's really a labor of love because, as you know, yes. I don't just write the books. I, I All the photography is also yeah. uh, by me and uh, my husband designs it, does the illustrations. So it's really... Is something that we have made ourselves. There's not, yes. there's not been this giant team of everyone doing things and and just you know yeah. writing the book. It, it's really a labor of love. Like you write your books. I mean, exactly. let's talk about your yeah. books as well because <laughs> you're the same. Every every book that you publish is 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 a passion and it's it's a, a beautiful work of art and and something that you can look at and see that this is this is really you. And I think that's so valuable. Uh, it's the same for you. <laughs> so you are now at home in Antwerp during the Belgian lockdown. How are you living these days? I am actually not too bad. I mean, there's a lot of things being said here on the news about uh, people are all depressed. And I don't think that's mm-hmm. true. A lot of people and a lot of creative people I've talked to, they all say I'm actually fine. I mean, of course, there's horrible things going on. And, and, yes. and you know, the people working on the front line uh, of this, they, 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 of, that, that's really severe. But we here at home, all we have to do is stay at home. And, and hopefully, if you can, work at home and and for me when the lockdown started it, it was kind of it was a relief because there were so much things going on in my life and and it, it has become also demanding that that when a lot of that faded away because meetings couldn't be couldn't happen and I didn't have to travel to them and everything could just happen through Skype or Zoom yeah. everything became less complicated and I could really focus on my creative projects with all without all the noise surrounding it. Oh, yeah. It's even the traffic here in the street, because I live in the city centre of Antwerp. It's a it's a quiet neighbourhood, but I can I can see a larger road and, and it's so calm now. And even that, even seeing the road, which is usually very busy, very calm, is having an effect on how I feel. And of and, and that's that's great. And I mean there the creative juices are flowing and I also feel it's it's almost a duty uh, to make this time count and create something nice in this in this time and create something and just as a de- as, as a dedication to the people who are working day and night yeah. to keep us safe yeah I think it's a luxury to have this time because uh, for, for me it's the same I really felt I needed this 
lockdown. It's really uh, not nice to see when you see people working on yeah on the first line. But um, this is really when, as a creative person, you can use all your time to dedicate to your personal creative projects. And it's something so difficult during normal times. So this is when you want to do the best with the days that you are given. Exactly. It's yeah. a gift. Yeah. It definitely it's is a gift. a gift. Yeah. Yeah. But we were supposed to meet in London at the beginning of April to celebrate your book launch. And then everything changed. So we could not really meet there. But I thought this could be a nice chance to talk about your book. So like doing a private book launch through a podcast. <laughs> so I would love to ask you a few questions. And I am sure everyone who is listening to this podcast is going to love the book as well as I love it. If they are not already baking from it, because you're famous. <laughs> so we are talking about this book a little bit in details, but I'm sure that many people already have the book and they are already baking from it. So let's start with the first question. You open your book dedicated to British baking with a mention to the strong link in between sugar and slavery. It was very unusual. It's a very unusual theme for a cookbook. Can you tell us something about it? To bake, you need a sweetener, and sugar doesn't grow in Europe, so it had to be brought here from places where it did grow. Ships left from Forest Africa with goods mm -hmm. from Britain. They then were unloaded, and the goods were sold, and the ships were loaded full of enslaved Africans, who were then sold mm. in the West Indies to work on plantations. Ships were then loaded with sugar, rum, spices, and other commodities, and sailed back to Britain and to other parts of Europe, where sugar would flavor their teas and their cakes. This was mm. called the triangular trade. It is one of the greatest disgraces in history. And the most excruciating thing is that the sugar trade still isn't treating its workers well. There are exceptions, of course, in fair trade, but many workers are still grossly underpaid and overworked. And I thought because of that and because of its horrible history, I should note this at the start of the book because all of the bakes in the book, all of the sweet bakes in the book anyway, wouldn't have existed if not for sugar imports that were made possible yeah. to slavery. So a little yeah. note just to make that clear. That yeah, just to make everyone more responsible exactly. about their, what they're eating. Yes, yeah. exactly. Sugar had a cost and, and it came from somewhere and we, we can never forget how it came to our shores. Yeah, yeah. But that's almost like everything in your book is like this. Behind every recipe, there's a story and there's a why and then it's related to geography, economy, tradition. So it's, it's one of the reasons why I really, really love your books, not just this one. But this one is a love letter to British baking and to Britain. It's bakeries and shops, it's traditions, and ingredients with all the backstories that you just mentioned. So this is something that we share and one of the reasons why we became friends, this love for Britain. But how did, all, did it all begin for you? Can you tell us something more about that huge blueberry muffin you mentioned in your book? Yes, so as a child, I fell in love with Britain and I nagged my parents like, can we go to Britain? Can we go to Britain? And <laughs> finally they gave in. Uh, and one of our first trips was uh, to Scotland. And I always had this fascination with, with bakeries. 
in every little village or town, there was a bakery and it was always a very small window from like a normal house. Not like in Belgium where bakeries were built with very large Mm-hmm. windows where you could see everything that they had on offer no the windows the bakery windows were always very small and I was always trying to kind of look into the window and see what they had on offer because I was never allowed to go in my my parents they don't have a sweet tooth and it, traditionally we didn't really buy cakes or or sweets it, it was just something they didn't think about so I never went into those bakeries which I still regret to this day So I tried pushing my nose against the window and trying to see inside and see what different types of bakes they had everywhere. So already then I realized that there was regional differences in baking, especially uh, when we had lunch. I I used to order a soup because I knew it was going to come with a a fresh bread roll. Yes. (laughs) I mean, this was the time before they used to like buy these pre-baked French mm-hmm. baguettes, awful things. That was a time where they would still buy the bread from their local bakery or bake it themselves. And, and you could see that in different regions, you would end up with a different shaped bread roll, which fascinated me to bits. And then on this one time when we, we were traveling around uh, Scotland, there was a bakery and it was different to all of the bakeries in a beautiful fjord-like town called Ullapool and the bakery Mm. was wide open it wasn't a small window the doors were wide open and I could just walk in and my parents they my my mom they she walked in with me and I saw this stack of large blueberry muffins and pointed to it and said could I have one and I don't know why but she said yeah you can have it it's I wasn't allowed a lot of sweet treats so I could (laughs) have it and that was the first time in my life I had a muffin and um, I was so amazed by the texture of, of, the, of the cake. It was so light because there was a lot of baking powder used. And then the, mm-hmm. the, the combination of those stains on the dough, on the, on, the, on the cake from the blueberries where you pick them out, it just fascinated me. And, and for me, when I got home, I just wanted to recreate that cake. I wanted to recreate that muffin. And I started experimenting in the kitchen. Now, my, my mom, she doesn't really, you know, she just cook or bake. She, 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 always, mm-hmm. she always cooked fresh meals for us, but she was not passionate about baking or anything. So we only had this one very old-fashioned cookbook. And uh, so I basically used the one recipe, the, you know, the, the, the pound cake recipe, and, mm-hmm. and experimented and, until I had different types of bakes that I would write down and, and always uh, bake. And, and so that's basically how my journey in baking started and my journey in food started through baking. So it's always yeah. been a very big, big part of my life. But I only recently just realized, you know, remembering that muffin in, in that oh, yes. cottage village, that <laughs> that was basically where it all was kickstarted. Yeah. Well, uh, we have, Tomas and I, we have the same incredible food memories about Allapol in Scotland. This is where we got the best meal during our honeymoon. So it must be a magic town probably for food <laughs> for everyone. It does look magical. Yeah, it, yeah. it looks like an, 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 a fjord in Norway, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, it's yeah, cool. Yeah. And I had this, this, this was this little fish stall. 
and we had the most amazing soup and Tommy had a, a roll with I don't know it was not shrimp something inside it was incredible the oh. best meal we had during the honeymoon and it was in Alapol so oh, brilliant. <laughs> it really works magic that little town mm-hmm. yeah everyone go there <laughs> yeah. after, the, after the lockdown yes. <laughs> after the lockdown yes <laughs> So your book is not just a cookbook anyway, it's, uh, or even a fascinating exploration of British traditions. It is a well-researched book about British food history. So I'm very curious, what does it take to research a book from a correct historical perspective? And how do you proceed when you start working on a new book? Of course, I already had a large list of classic British bakes. So I had a a point of start, really. Mm-hmm. So it was then a case of, of diving into my collection of vintage and antique cookery books and finding the recipes there and noting down how they evolved and how, um, how, how different recipes appeared and when they appeared and why they appeared. Was it linked to uh, some kind of fashion fad of the period? Uh, trying to like link what food was eaten when to events in history as well because mm-hmm. um, that could influence how a bake would evolve and uh, then it was also looking at newspaper archives to see if some bakes popped up in, in uh, popped up in advertising or in stories or sometimes even recipes some old newspapers also publish recipes like they do today which is fun to see. So mm-hmm. then um, I also looked at diaries from the periods, uh, like for the 17th century, it's it's uh, it's Peeps, which is a very good source to look mm-hmm. at. If, if I want to know something that happened in the 17th century or, or something, want to know something that was fashionable in the 17th century, I'll, I'll, I'll look at uh, Peeps' diary and see if it was mentioned by him because he mentions a lot of food, and eating in his diary. So diaries are always a good way to um, find out stuff about the past. And uh, yeah. and then, of course, um, it's 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 uh, basically inter- interpreting everything that you found, and then uh, uh, trying to create one cohesive story to put yeah. into the book. And is it difficult to rework? Uh, recipes from old times like related to ingredients that are different now and then or baking methods yes definitely um in 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 the past uh of course the the first recipes were always very um incomplete because Mm -hmm. uh a lot of people um the, the the first recipes they were written by uh the chefs Mm-hmm. of the court kitchens and they just wrote them down as an aid memoir they they didn't really want to write down the entire recipe they they would say you know cover the paste cover the tart uh, casing with pastry but they wouldn't explain what kind of pastry or they wouldn't even mention they would just give a recipe for a tart and just give uh, a recipe for the filling and you you would you know think okay is this then without any casing is without any pastry (laughs) is it just the filling um so you have to kind of um kind of learn how to read historical recipes in order to to create a recipe that people today can can make uh also of course flowers different um eggs were much smaller in the past Mm -hmm. so if a recipe calls for 12 eggs try it with six 
because it's almost half. Mm. So you you have to know these kind of things. Um, otherwise, you'll end up with a lot of you know failed bakes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, of course, there's there's been a lot of talk about you know people in the past using a lot of spices, um, mm-hmm. but that was just because spices had lost a lot of their flavor once they arrived mm. here. And and today, of course, they're all in in in, in vacuum packed bags or jars and. Uh, they arrive in, in in quite a good shape. Yes. Yeah. So there's. Well, it's almost yeah. like. Sorry. No. It's okay. <laughs> it's almost like trying to cook from your from your grandmother's recipe. <laughs> like when you had something like something of these and something of that, and then you don't have quantities or yes. timing for cooking. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's very similar to cooking yeah. from your grandmother's recipe. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's what I enjoy the most. Uh, is is yeah. is it's. it's Historical recipes are often a mystery and it's, you know, yeah. you want to unlock that mystery. And, and that's something that I enjoy doing a lot. So, so for me, I, I love just reviving historical cuisine. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can really see from your books because all the recipes are working, even though they are based on ancient recipes. So it's, uh, it's something important in a cookbook when recipes work. I mean, it's fundamental for me. Uh, Anyway, another question. From the title of your book, Oats in the North, Wheat from the South, we infer a link in between baking and geography. How does geography influence British baking? And which are the most typical examples we can find in your book? So in the north of Britain, uh, the climate is much rougher. Summers are shorter and much wetter. So wheat actually doesn't grow well there. And historically, oats and barley or bear meal were the crops that thrived. And... um, it's, 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 of course, the reason why people would use that for their baking. And it resulted in a culture of, of flatbreads like oat cakes and griddle cakes because you can't bake a leaven loaf uh, like you can with, mm. with wheat. Of course, in the South, those crops uh, were used mainly for animal fodder, uh, barley and, and oats. And wheat was used for baking, giving us all the yeasted cakes and buns uh, that we're mm-hmm. used to from from the south. Um, there's of course like saffron buns and saffron cakes, and in the north, like I said, the flat, the flatbreads, like uh, flat oat cakes, uh, and uh, things like uh, uh, scones and Welsh cakes, things that just don't get a lot of rice because mm-hmm. they're baked on a griddle, which is placed over a fire on or on top of a, a stove, rather than baking it in the oven. Yeah. And these are some of the recipes I really want to make from your book with oats. Really, they're really interesting. I like to think about me having them with some cheese. So Mm. (laughs) I'm really interested about those recipes. But now to a special recipe in your book, your wedding cake. You shared the recipe in the book. When we met, we had, you had just had your wedding in England. And I was so fascinated by the photos and by your double celebration. But the wedding cake is what really got my attention. Why was it so special for you? So we had our wedding cake made in England because, of course, we wanted our English wedding to be as English as it could be. So we had to have (laughs) a a typically English wedding cake, which is a fruit cake. And uh, that's a, a cake which is very dense and dark, full of currants and raisins and maybe cherries and also a lot of 
booze because <laughs> it was made <laughs> our wedding cake was made three months before our wedding and then it was left to mature and then you get this moorish cake which is absolutely fabulous and of course when when I was writing the book and in general the things I miss the most is is not having any family recipes of my own mm-hmm. and and that's something you have plenty of Julia I'm really jealous you have so many you know <laughs> family food traditions which I don't have and you know it's a connection with your ancestors that that yeah. that, that you have and, and and I'm missing that so of course I also didn't have any British family recipes and uh, when it came to the Christmas cake I really longed to have a family recipe for the book so I asked around and many people were so generous and willing to share their recipe but I was still missing this personal connection and and then it hit me my wedding cake because Fruitcake is not traditionally only wedding cake. Fruitcake was made historically in Britain for all celebrations. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it morphed into this wedding cake and, and, and Christmas cake. So Christmas cake and wedding cake, uh, wedding fruitcake anyway, can be one and the same cake. So that's when it hit me. I have to contact Becky who made the cake and, and, and ask. I can only ask. So... Turns out the family, uh, the recipe is also her family recipe and she was so happy to gift it to me and it felt really special. It's such a big gift to be gifted a family recipe and to be able to, yeah, and especially also publish it in a book because it's out there. I mean, (laughs) she can't be protective about her recipe because it's now in a book and I'm I'm so, so grateful to have now a family recipe uh, that is British that has a very personal connection to to me as well. So, you know, I bake a Christmas cake, an English Christmas cake every year. And this year, I already know that I will bake this. So I hope it will be part of our family tradition as well from this Christmas. (laughs) So it will be a very special Christmas. Wouldn't that be beautiful? I mean, that's, yeah, I think things like that. I mean, that, that, that's so special. And again, I'm so jealous you have this amazing... (laughs) repertoire of of family recipes that connects you to your ancestors well but from now on we'll have this recipe as well which belongs somehow to your family extended family and so yes this is yet another connection we have exactly yeah so uh not just cakes but also buns in your book there are so many recipes and i basically bookmarked all of them i really want to try them I like the idea of having a toast soft bun, possibly with butter and jam for breakfast. Which is your favorite recipe? Which shall I start with? Well, it's hard to choose. Like you say, there are so many British buns. The British, they absolutely adore their buns. Um, mm. um, but if I have to choose one, I'd say the hot cross buns, which mm-hmm. are traditionally made for Good Friday, which has just passed. So I just made my uh, hot cross buns last month. And and it's 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 something I really do only try to bake uh, at um, a Good Friday because then it, mm-hmm. it, it stays special it stays something to look forward to rather than something you can have every day any day when you feel like baking it so yeah I I mean I think it's because I only have it once a year I I look forward to it and they are my favorite but then other again I mean I also adore the Cornish saffron buns they are Mm -hmm. gorgeous with the caraway seeds and the candied peel it's super great and then if you would want to have more like a regular like, like like a weekday or even you know 
normal weekend bun. You could have the the, the tea cakes, which are just mm. with, with some currants in them, and they are fantastic toasted. So, you know, there's a, I think there's a bun for every occasion and every, mm. every you know, every person's uh, likes. Yes. Yeah, and mood. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, I like the idea that you bake the hot cross buns just for Easter, so on Good Friday, because for, for me it's the same. On on Thursday, the Thursday before Easter, I like to have the pan di ramerino, which are buns with raisins. They are baked in Florence, and they have a cross. I mean, it's not uh, the white cross as you, as you see on the hot cross buns. It's a cross that you make by uh, using a kind of scraper on top, like pressing it. But they're baked, they used to be baked just for the Good Friday, the Good uh, Thursday. Can you say Good Thursday? I don't know, for Thursday before Easter. And then they were uh, brought to the mass, they were blessed, and then you would eat them. So now you find them in Mary Bakeries in Florence and in Tuscany throughout the year. But they were specifically made before Easter. And I like to have them just before Easter for this very reason, because it makes them very special, because you have them just once a year. Exactly. So, and yeah. there's one really interesting thing that you said, and that's that uh, the cross in your uh, Easter buns, they are, it's made with a scraper, so it's pushed in. Well, hot cross, a hot cross buns like they look today with, with the, the cross piped on top with just plain pastry mm-hmm. is a very modern thing because the old hot cross buns, they were made exactly like your yeah. buns. They were also yeah. just made by pushing in the cross with yes. with um well they had these special wooden dockers made especially mm. to push in the cross so it's interesting isn't it it's interesting how yeah. cultures all over the world and especially in europe have so many overlapping traditions exactly exactly it's the same period same ingredients same shape for the buns so it's very interesting yeah absolutely, absolutely. it's it's that that is just something that excites me so much to to learn from uh people from other countries and see that they have so similar traditions yeah. to ours yeah yeah exactly and then in ours there's ramerino which is ramerino is the uh, tuscan name for rosmarino so rosemary ah. uh, that gives a very special flavor to these buns with because the rosemary is almost fried in the oil and then added uh, and so it's they are delicious oh, next next year you have to try oh, this as well sounds amazing <laughs> yeah but it's cool isn't um, it that the, <clears throat> yeah to have food connected to yes the, the the course of the year uh, because it it kind of helps us connect to the seasons doesn't it exactly exactly this is why it's good to respect uh the right moment to bake something like you know you have the schiacciata fiorentina for carnival in florence or the big easter bread that we make for just for easter but on Easter day, you eat that not on, on Friday or Thursday so it's it's a way to you know uh, to have a sense of the passing of time exactly. through baking. Exactly. Which is incredible. And it makes life so much more exciting than having yeah. it every day and yes. basically just being bored by it. If you keep yeah. it on the date it should be, then it's something to look forward to every time again. Exactly. And then, you know, everyone is now saying, oh, too much, too many cakes or sugar. But if you still have the, 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 the sugary thing on the day you are supposed to have, that is not too much. It's just a celebration. So in the moderation, you find your balance, basically. Oh, that is so true. Absolutely. I mean, in the past, people would not have meat or uh, very rich bakes every day or every week even it was only on high days only on special days and I think maybe we should go back to that yeah 
Yeah, moderation. Yeah. Moderation, absolutely. Uh, so another fascinating part of the book is dedicated to oat cakes and grid oat cakes. They tell a lot about the climate and the landscape and the economy of a land they come from. And can you tell us something about them? There's a lot of interesting uh, bakes, griddle bakes uh, in the north of England or the north of Britain anyway. And uh, it tells us a story not just of, of climate and the fact that oats and, and, and barley were the crops that only grew in the north. It also tells us something about the development of the kitchen. Uh, while in the south, uh, kitchens were becoming, and ovens were becoming more, more common in the north that would take much longer. So people would still... Uh, bake their their bread their daily bread which was a flat bread of different kinds of different types of flat uh cakes and griddle breads and things like that they would bake that on a baked stone or a mm -hmm. griddle which they would place over an open fire or on a on a on a on a fireplace on a, or on a on a stove so they could bake the bread dire directly onto it which you know it's it's perfectly possible the nature of those bakes being that you bake them quickly because they don't need time. They, they don't contain yeast, so they don't need the time. They are quick mm -hmm. breads, as they are called. And, um, and one, one exciting one is called uh, Clap Cake. It's from Cumbria in the north of England. And when I found out about that one, I was just this is one of the most exciting things in my book for me anyway. <laughs> and it's, it looks the clap cake or a clap bread or haver cake is made with oats, only oats. And it's, it's, it looks like Scandinavian crisp bread, which is so exciting. But if you come to think about it, the, the climate of Scandinavia and the North of uh, England and, and the North of and, and Scotland and Wales, it looks, exactly. looks a lot like same. that of Scandinavia, yeah. yeah, where they also grow a lot of oats in Scandinavia. So it makes sense. And um, it's, 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 it's sad to see that it disappeared because, of course, when the railways came, it, it was possible mm. to import wheat flour much easily from the south. And, and the, bake, the baking culture changed. Um, so, so the clap cake crisp bread was, was sadly lost but I'm now trying to revive it. I'm, I'm talking about <laughs> it everywhere to revive it because it is such a lovely bake. I mean, I've been baking it and uh, in, in large batches, you can keep it in like a very sturdy brown paper bag mm. and it keeps for a month. It's, it's great because you can just bake a lot and, and then just, you know, enjoy them for a long time. I love them for breakfast, spread with some ricotta or some mm. cream cheese or I love them with a wedge of Stilton or any other blue cheese. Um, it, it's so versatile. I mean, and it also, it looks so nice on your cheese board to, to have those, yeah. you know, they have these beautiful shapes, very rough looking, um, and, and you've made them yourself and they're healthy because they're made with oats. So yeah, I, I hope everyone will start baking that one. And in a moment like this, uh, this is a recipe you can really make with, very simple ingredients that you can easily find. Yeah. But there's no yeast, right? Because it's so difficult to find yeast now. Yes, exactly. No so yeast. It's something you can make. Exactly. Because there's a lot of a problem with, 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 with wheat flour and yeast yeah. um, to get that uh, these days. But oat flour remains in the shelves. So buy, yeah. buy oat flour and, and, and make these uh, fantastic oat cakes, these haver cakes or clap cakes because all you need is oats and 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 
um, uh, a bit of water and, and, and a yeah. bit of salt. And then you can create these fantastic crisp breads, which, you know, everyone will be so impressed by once the time is ready to, uh, to invite guests again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but for the moment, we can practice. Exactly. <laughs> we can exactly. practice on baking them. <laughs> exactly. And what I use is I, I have, because um, I'm a bit geeky about uh, kitchen uh, equipment. So I have these antique Scandinavian crisp bread uh, rolling pins. Which yes, have I was this, wondering yes. about their texture. Exactly. So you can use you can use a regular rolling pin to 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 roll out the the crisp breads. But but then if you have one of those Scandinavian, you can mm. buy them new in Scandinavian. In Scandinavia, you can buy them new from uh, mm-hmm. cookery shops, and it has these knobs. You know, it's it's like bubbly a bubbly mm. s- texture, and then y- you can roll that over your crisp bread, and it makes it even more crisp, and it gives it a, such a, a really lovely look and a l- lovely texture as well. Yeah, fantastic. So now to one of the reasons I love Britain so much: the ritual of the afternoon tea. So should we want to have a proper afternoon tea? Which are the rules to follow and the recipes we must have? Of course, the rules are these days much more relaxed, but still, there's still a lot of <laughs> etiquette, especially if you go to like um, uh, one of the, the grand hotels in London, then there it's, it's still pretty, pretty traditional and a lot of etiquette involved. So basically, if you want to do it right, you should only use loose tea leaves, Mm-hmm. And uh, you should choose, uh, you should uh, have uh, one teaspoon for every guest and one for the mm. pot. I really love that. You have to, <laughs> yes. you know, have one tea, you know, one teaspoon of tea leaves for the pot. The pot should always be warmed first. Water should be freshly boiled. So no boiling the water that's already in the kettle. Give that to the plants. Uh, mm-hmm. There should be uh, a milk creamer on the, on the table. Uh, there should be some lemon wedges. And a tea strainer, of course, because you're using tea leaves. Mm-hmm. And uh, the hostess should always pour the tea because it shows that you are in charge. You have mm. the power. You are also the highest status person of your family if you are pouring the tea. So it's also um, it also shows, you know, power, and it gives power. Mm-hmm for the first time to the woman of the household, which was historically very important that time when uh, the tea ritual started to appear in England. Then the saucer, because a lot of people pick up the saucer and the teacup. Yeah. Saucer should remain on the table. And the <laughs> okay. cup should be lifted to That's the a mistake I make. <laughs> yes, yes. You should lift the cup on its own and you should never put your pinky finger Mm. up in the air <laughs> sadly because i think it looks very nice yes. <laughs> and then very of course, <laughs> exactly and uh, very ladylike yes. <laughs> um and then of course there's the food because you can't have an afternoon tea party without the food it should be arranged uh on a tiered cake stand uh it's always been like that etiquette books uh of the periods also stipulated um a stand with shelves it said Mm-hmm. And the top plate should always be reserved for scones or mm. Cornish splits, which are also in the book. And then the second plate, so the middle plate, should hold the finger sandwiches, the small sandwiches. And then the third uh, plate should hold the cake. Uh, Victoria sponge cake is very traditional, but it could also be 
a slice of any other uh, cake, um, coffee and walnut cake or a little tart of some yeah. kind. Uh, yeah. So if you keep to those rules, then it will be just perfect, Julia. Yeah, I can wait to have one. <laughs> I had one in London for my 30th birthday. And that, that's one of the best memories. I was with Sharka, so uh, a mutual friend we have. Uh, and it's such, I don't know, it's a cozy ritual. Uh, so I should do this often, mm-hmm. even at home. Yes. I, I have all the recipes in your book to bake. So I should do this again. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what is, the, what is uh, very special about the afternoon tea ritual is that it brings back a lot of um, importance to mm-hmm. uh, an eating ritual. Uh, yeah. Because today we, we, we sit down and we eat and, and we finish and it's done. But, but having an afternoon tea really is an occasion. It's, it's a special occasion. Yeah. So we, it, it brings back um, the, the, the eating ritual to a, a place where it is special and not something yeah. you do to survive, but something you do to enjoy and, and maybe, you know, celebrate or uh treat yourself yeah so uh, now another question here we don't find clotted cream so i know you have a recipe for clotted cream in your pride and pudding book so the previous one but if i want to substitute clotted cream with something what what can i use um so uh, i would try and find a nice organic uh, full fat cream so minimum mm-hmm. for, minimum of 40 percent fat uh, content mm. um and um yeah of course uh you, you whisk, uh, whisk it um mm. until it's very thick and i tend to if it's really good cream um i tend to just whisk it a bit too long so it's going almost towards butter Yeah, and then you almost have that texture that clotted cream also has because clotted cream looks a lot like butter's been mixed with uh, cream, which it is, yeah. which it isn't, of course, but it, it looks a lot like that. So it should be whisked a bit too long. If you mm-hmm. if you can't really find a rich cream like that, because there are some countries where it's very difficult to find 40% fat content Here, cream. for example, yes. it is 34, 36%. Exactly. Yeah. It's starting to be the same thing here because people are absolutely obsessed with fat. I mean, <laughs> fat is not bad. Luckily, that's changing. But you, uh, and especially in, uh, in, in Italy, where you have fantastic mascarpone, you could mm, mix yeah. some mascarpone under the under the, the cream to get the yeah. same results. Yeah, but anyway, clotted cream is something oh. that comes from heaven. It really. is heaven. <laughs> oh, my God. It is heaven. It is heaven. Really? I absolutely, <laughs> I miss it so much. I mean, I know I can make it myself, but yeah. it's just never the same as yeah. having clotted cream from one of the good creameries in England. It, it's just, it's never the same. It's it's yeah. just glorious, glorious and yeah. full fat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Once in a while. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Now, this is a quick question. We share the same love for a proper tea and toast. And actually, we have had many breakfasts together based on a good cup of a great tea and a toast, or more than one toast. So you also mentioned the importance of this ritual in your book. But I know that you and Bruno, your husband, you, have, you love quite a different style of toast. How do you like your toast? 
Well, I like my toast very well done. So um, <laughs> not golden, but golden brown. And mm, I'm burnt. <laughs> really, yeah. and I, I really do like a, a little bit of burnt edges. I know it's it's really not good for you, but I, I do like the flavor of a little bit of mm. burnt toast. I also really adore the smell of burnt toast. Yes. I really love it. When I was going to uh, to high school, uh, one day a month, the whole neighborhood in Antwerp where my school was used to smell like burnt toast. And I was wow. always wondering, like, is there this one person in the street who always burns their toast? I absolutely <laughs> loved the smell. I, I Sometimes I just let a piece of toast burn a little bit just to have the smell in the house because it feels so homey. It feels so warm. Yeah. And then later I fact, actually found out, and you're, you're really going to love this, I really found out that in the in the neighborhood of my school once a month mm-hmm. they were uh, brewing guinness so they were ah. actually toasting the grains wow. for guinness which smells yeah. like burnt toast yes yeah so um that's, so, yeah. that's incredible yeah and my husband <laughs> yeah. he, just, he he likes toast in the most horrible way you know that kind of toast that you think is it toasted or is is the bread just gone stale? There there shouldn't be much color to it. It sh- it should just be maybe a little bit warm and there's sh- yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not toast. It's no no. I absolutely <laughs> agree. <laughs> I absolutely agree. And Thomas is the same. So he prefers not to have it toasted directly. It's like <laughs> fresh bread. Yes. And I like I toast my bread every morning. A little bit too much because I really like it. Mm. Either with you know savory cheese or prosciutto, or even just with butter and jam or ricotta and jam. But the toast has to be toasted. Mm-hmm. Yes, it adds to the flavor, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and the comfort. Mm. Oh yes, definitely the comfort and the coziness. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we are really missing breakfast together. Yes. <laughs> well, so. One of the insights of your book that I found more fascinating is about pie and mesh. Just like the Lampredotto stalls in Florence, this is the place where you can find, in the same time, young and old people, students, mothers, working class, and people in a tailored suit. Why are they so important for the British culture? Well, uh, working class people in the 18th and 19th century, they would buy their food in the streets from street sellers. Uh, Houses didn't have kitchens, just maybe a little fire. A lot of people were living in the same uh, space. Uh, And if they were, uh, if they were lucky, uh, they, they were lucky to get street food. And that's how the people were fed. And then by the end of the 19th century, the street sellers of, uh, of pies and hot eels, which were very popular uh, mm. street foods uh, of the period, they started to open actual brick and mortar pie and mash shops. So buying your food in the streets became less desirable and it started to disappear. And funnily enough, you know, there's this whole uh, food truck and the street food thing that, that yeah. came back uh, a couple of years ago uh, and people just wanted to get rid of it in the past. So the pie and mushrooms, they did get a beating uh, during the two world wars. And of course, also with the gentrification of the past uh, decade, uh, with all, you know, more fancy places coming in and and you know also the places to uh, the the 
high rents, uh, mm-hmm. which aren't uh, making it possible for Payama shops to remain. Uh, but they are still a fixture of London life. And, and like you say, you can see people from all society. I like to spend uh, some time in, in a Payama shop and then you'll mm-hmm. see the elderly people walking in with their like little trolleys. And, mm. you know, the, the lady from the pie and mash shop, she will already have ready a whole stack of pies and mash. So it really does feed the, the elderly a proper home-cooked meal because the pies and mash served in, in those establishments, they, they feel like the mash you make at home and, and the pies you yeah. make at home. It's, it's homey food. It's, 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 it's very wholesome and it doesn't change. It just remains the same. Uh, throughout and um, yeah then you also see young people students but also hipsters and (laughs) and guys in suits coming from you know the city they are enjoying this as well because probably it makes them think about their mom's cooking or their nan's cooking so it's it's a there's a lot of um a nostalgia i think linked with that as well but also again this whole working class thing there'll be like uh, a taxi on, uh, on you know in mm-hmm. front in front of the shop with his you know it's it's how do you say the indicators all on uh just yeah. you know walking in or a truck will just stop and you know stop in the middle of this in, on, in the street <laughs> with his indicators on and they will walk into a pie and mash shop and and queue for their uh daily uh pie and and, and mash and maybe some eels as well which are absolutely delicious and then they serve the pie and mash with um it's a very similar to the green sauce they serve the lampredotto with because it's a sauce made with parsley. Oh really? Gosh, that's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's called liquor, which is funny because mm-hmm. it's there's no alcohol in it. It's, yeah, alcohol. Yeah. yeah, it's called liquor and it's indeed it's made with um the the the, the court bouillon, you know, the the, the cooking mm-hmm. liquid that they have cooked the eels in. Which is oh. it's thickened by the gelatin in the in the in the eel uh, skin oh. and in the bones, and they'll add a lot of parsley to it, and it becomes a very thick sauce. And I, I never really I, I never really liked uh, liquor, but the funny thing is, always if I go to a pie and mash shop in London, I'll I'll go like yeah pie and mash and some jelly deals on the side and a cup of tea because you have to have mm-hmm. a cup of tea with it. My husband <laughs> thinks it's, it's really weird, but I love a cup of tea with a hot meal, like with fish and chips or pie and mash. Yeah. I love a cup of tea with it. And then the lady will always say, wow, that's too dry. And she'll fill a cup, like a, 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 a teacup. She'll fill a teacup with, with liquor and give it to me. Like, you know, you'll, you know, it's too dry. You have to have it with liquor. <laughs> And I was like, okay, that's me, told. Okay. It's it's funny. I mean, the ladies who work in in those pie and mash shops, they they almost, you know, they're they're like the 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 the, the cafe land ladies here in yeah. Belgium. They become like mothers and and aunties yes. who just think it's better for you to have a cup of yeah. liquor. With and you your cannot pie. refuse. Exactly, you can't refuse. You just go like, okay, <laughs> I will do this. Yeah. I will do this because they are right. Yeah. Yes, that that was an incredible journey through your cookbook. But I have one last question. During the coronavirus lockdown, you launched a hashtag, BayCorona, which immediately became viral. So pardon the pun. Why (laughs) did you launch it and how can we join it? Well, um, for us, it was it was the first uh, day of lock-in, or not not lock-in. A lock-in is something that you have in a pub after closing time. 
we're having a lockdown, which is far less fun <laughs> than being yeah. in a pub. Okay, so yeah, first day of lockdown. And um, there, there was a lot of confusion here in Belgium about what do we do? What is expected from us? So we were expected to keep a distance, but there wasn't really a good t term for it. So I um, talked about the fact that, you know, it, 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 social distancing, but that's, of course, an English term. And people mm -hmm. didn't understand. So I thought maybe if I try and do it in a fun and engaging way to tell people to stay home, then it will make people understand who are confused about what's what's needed. I mean, not everyone can grasp the idea of social yeah. distancing if you no. if you don't know the language. So um, I started Bay Corona and I said to people, let's all stay in and bake because if we bake it we can beat it we can beat this mm -hmm. virus together and um people contacted me all over saying i mean this this feels all such a negative situation and of course it is it is very severe but because of creating this hashtag we don't we are not alone we can be part yeah. of a baking community and we can show each other our bakes and we can have the com a conversation together all the while, while we are doing it, we're spreading the word of Bake Corona, which means stay home and bake. Yeah. So social distancing. So that's why I started it to just, especially for the people here in Belgium to, to kind of say, this is what it means. Just, you know, stay in. It's, there's no problem. It's, it's not a bad thing to stay in. It's, it's, a, it's a really small thing that we can do to help the situation. Yeah. And to release the stress. Because exactly. when you are locked down at home, really baking a cake, a bread, can really change the mood of the day. And then eating your bread or cake really uplifts your spirit. And oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and I, I especially loved the fact that people contacted me privately, not just openly on social media, but privately saying, you know what, I've actually never baked in my life. But because I thought this was just such a positive um, uh, thing that you are doing, and I felt so inspired that I wanted to be a part of it, I, yeah. I started baking, and now I love it. And it feels so good to be able to do something and create something and be able to eat it and share yeah. it in a socially responsible way, of course. Um, and, 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 and yeah, if, if, it, if it gets people in the kitchen, I'm really happy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Doing something uh, with your hands, so something that you can touch and eat. So it brings back to your senses and it's a great thing to do in a situation like this. Absolutely, Absolutely. yeah. So we really reached the end of all the questions I wanted to, to ask you. Uh, really thank you for, for this chat because we really missed that. Uh, and um, of course, everyone will find all your contacts in the episode show notes. Uh, so all the details about you and your book and they can find you on social media and they can join the Bake Corona Baking from your book or their typical traditional family recipes. So thank you again. And I really hope that the next time, I mean, we'll chat anyway, but that we will meet soon when all this situation will be over. 
Oh, yes. I'm so looking forward to just sitting there in your beautiful kitchen in Tuscany and just having that cup of tea together and our toasts yeah. and just, yeah. well you know, toasted. yeah, well toasted, <laughs> talking together. And uh, yeah, I mean, yes, re really yeah. something to look forward to. Yes. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Ciao. 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 <laughs>